Hello, Jacob. Hey, how are how you? Are you? Good. Very good, man. Thanks. Yeah. How are you doing? Doing great. Awesome. Uh, so, Jacob, you've been doing software for quite some time, and maybe you could, uh, you know, introduce us to what, what what have you done? What is Focus Dev, and what do you do these days? Sure, absolutely. So I've been developing software for a couple of decades now. Um, I actually started developing uh, when I was an intern in college. And even before that, you know, I was actually building software at my house, you know, when I was 15 years old uh, on an old Packard Bell PC. So, oh, wow. nice one. you know, it got started pretty young. What, what was uh, that? Was it a basic or what would you use back then? No, actually, I was building with Pascal back in those days. Pascal, yeah. If you remember that language. Yeah. Now, it wasn't very useful for building software products, but it was a good learning language, right? It mm. kind of gets you started. Um, and then the, the language I actually jumped to after that was Perl, if you remember Perl, which was kind of a scripting. Uh, that's still still popular, right? Uh, I mean, like for scripting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. In the basements, et cetera. I think that's where it's still popular, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that was really actually where I got my web start was uh, in Perl. So um, mm. I was building uh, CGI scripts with Perl, and then uh, mm. a framework that was built called Mod Perl, which allowed you to uh, you know yeah. build more um, more scalable systems with Perl uh, than mm. what CGI offered. So, uh, but yeah, so I started there, um, and then got into consulting, and I've I've been consulting now for about fifteen years. Um, so, uh, that's, you know, kind of been, uh, the direction of my career, um, was, you know, initially working full-time for organizations and then realizing that, um, I really wanted to be able to have different experiences and, uh, work with a, a variety of domains and different types of clients and technologies. And that's really, uh, driven the direction of what I wanted to do. Got it. So you've been in the market for, let's say for two decades. Yep. So I'm guessing you've seen ups and downs from a software guy's point of view. So what's your take on that? Like if there's a guy that's coming in or a gal that wants to start the software development as a professional, um, from your experience, what, what would be the tips and tricks you could share from your years of experience, how they can survive? Uh, for example, in these are certain uh, days that um, we have today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Anybody who's going into software, um, the first thing I try to say to them is, is don't do it unless you really enjoy learning uh, along the mm. way. Because if you're not the type of person who likes to constantly be learning, you're going to struggle in the software field. Um, it's just very hard to find that job. You know, years ago, um, I think that companies like, like take a JCPenney, for instance, um, mm. it's around for multiple decades. You might be able to get a company, get into a company like that, which was a, a client of mine and stay there for 30 years building on the same technology. But the likelihood of you seeing, you know, your salary continue to increase the way you want and uh, building the career you want, um, it, it's going to be challenging, right? You're going to run into some, uh, uh, some difficulties there along the way because, you know, technology change. And uh, it's just the way it is. You have to evolve with it. Um, you know, it, it's very similar to, uh, you know, musicians, right? The way musicians are is the, the ones that have been successful and the bands that continue to be popular over time are the ones that reinvent themselves over the years, right? They talk about that all the time. They change with the sounds and with the, uh, the, the new things that uh, come into popularity, right? They, mm. They're constantly reinventing the way that they they write music and the, the, the musical um, uh, compositions that they create. 
So you have to do the same thing in software to stay relevant and mm. uh, stay, uh, you know, interesting to others within the field. So that's, uh, I think that's the key thing you have to remember is that if you want to get into this field, you really have to be focused on uh, being willing to you know, learn and have a career full of learning. Mm. Um, but, you know, to that effect, uh, the first you know, layoff I went through, what kind of got me uh, into the mode of really being focused on, uh, you know, taking control of my career was I, I went through a, a layoff when I was just a college intern, uh, which was kind of a, a weird experience, right? Uh, when you're in college, you know, you kind of look at that job and you're like, oh, well, you know, a job, once I get set, you know, it's great, right? I'll be working for a company. I've got a salary coming in. Um, I don't have to worry anymore. Uh, they're, they're taking care of me, right? I, and, and it's kind of like a family situation. Uh, but I realized quickly, I came in uh, to the industry as an intern um, during the dot-com uh, dot boom. And uh, when telecom companies were just uh, kind of blowing up, right? You had your Cisco, you had your Alcatel and Nortel. Um, and, and I'm actually located in the Dallas area. So um, I went to school at UTD, which is in Richardson, right there in the telecom corridor. So these companies were huge. They had their big buildings there. And uh, UTD was just sending interns over there to get jobs. And it was great. You know, you, you could uh, go in there and learn a lot. I mean, there was a lot to be learned. And that's kind of where I got started with Pearl. That's where I learned the language was doing that. Um, but then the telecom bust happened whenever the you know dot-com boom ended uh, because the companies just no longer needed to buy all of this equipment to you know host all mm. these websites and you know keep keep the growth going within the IT field. Yeah. So working at Alcatel at the time, which is where I was uh, interning, they actually laid off the entire department that I worked in. And it was a weird experience, right? I, I, I never even knew that layoffs existed before that happened. I didn't even know that was a thing. And I got a call from my manager. Um, I was actually at school, so it went to voicemail. And uh, I called him back on my flip phone at the time, right? Uh, you know, back before smartphones. And uh, gave him a call. And he said, well, you don't need to bother coming in today. Um, you know, they've closed down the department. You know, they're they're letting go of the building. Uh, the lease is up at the end of a couple months. So, mm. done. you know, that's it. <laughs> in a panic, I remember rushing over to uh, the office where, you know, they basically talked to interns and got you set up. And, uh, you know, they said, don't worry, don't worry, we'll get you somewhere else because I needed a job. You know, I, I was making money from this, right? It's, mm. it's kind of funding my college career doing this internship. And uh, so they got me in somewhere else. But uh, it was a weird experience, right? It kind of taught me a lesson early on. Um, and I think those lessons are important uh, that people learn um, that, you know, a job is uh, not necessarily safe, right? I think we're seeing that a lot right now in the tech mm. field with all these layoffs between Google and, um, you know, uh, uh, what's Meta, uh, Microsoft, you know, even though they're seeing huge profits, they're still, you know, laying people off. And that's just kind of the name of the game. Um, yep. It's all about keeping uh, the company earning uh, the expectations of the shareholders, right? And uh, bringing the money in that they want to bring in. Um, and it's a management decision at the top. So you, you just can't rely on uh, those positions always being there and you need to keep yourself current. Um, so keep learning, keep working, keep keep building your career. Um, what about you? I mean, what's, uh, what's been your experience in that area? Um, so touching on what you said right now, um, what I've learned was this job stability discussion that happens um, in different circles. 
it's an interesting one uh, because I've seen many people say that having these permanent jobs is actually secure. And I think what's more secure from my experience is what you said, staying relevant, keeping up with the markets. And then, and what naturally comes with that is probably you eventually just become a consultant and you go freelancing or contracting, depending on which country you're in. So what happens is, um, instead of a full security of the job where you have a permanent contract, which can be ended tomorrow if the department gets uh, redundant, um, at least you have the skills to be um, decoupled from any of those layoffs because actually people are looking for you, not the other way around. So I think what you, what you started with, staying relevant and learning all the time, um, that's going to help you um, avoid these situations with uncertainty. Um, but yeah, when it comes to um, what I've learned over over the years as a software consultant, I think that the, the, the top thing I've learned was that keep on learning and uh, don't be afraid to fail. So kind of what you're saying, plus you're going to be failing all the time with different things. Just keep on learning. Don't give up. And um, on top of that, I would also stack up that I notice a lot of there's, there's groups of software development professionals that focus a lot on local maximums. So they're going to be perfectly designing codes, running perfect codes, deploying them in a perfect way. But that software is not going to be making money for the company. And we got to think about what is um, what is what is the purpose of the code you're writing so if you're an artist uh the purpose is the thing you're creating so if you're an artist software developer perfect code's good enough but most of the time you're getting paid by the company to deliver results for the clients and also profits for the company so um, what i notice is that a lot of developers um maybe have problems switching from this software development mindset to a bit of a consultant mindset and thinking about the bigger picture and um yeah trying to uh, you know step away leave their comfort zone a bit and the lines of code and think about what am i doing actually here how do i fit in into this uh, bigger organization and how i can deliver value and i think a lot of uh, a lot of us do it but i guess what i'm trying to say is maybe we could do it earlier right you can start year three don't wait for year 10 to kind of naturally be pushed there by the company. You can start looking at those things earlier. I don't know what's your experience with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I always tell people, whether they're in software or they're the business or whatever it is, you know, for software developers, delivery is the moment we create value, right? Up until that point, we're just a cost to the organization Mm. and that's all there is to it. So focusing on that delivery and making sure that you're, not only consistently delivering, but consistently delivering something that's useful to the business um, is key and critical. Um, if you're not, then they just look at you as something that you know can be cut, right? I mean, you're not creating that value and you're not building um, you know, something that is bringing in profits to the organization. So why do we need you, right? So always make sure you're focused on that delivery. And I think that's a big problem for teams as well. You know, teams struggle with that um, and, and they especially teams that don't uh, look at things from an agile perspective and, and they're not focused on continuously delivering software, but instead working through, you know, more of a waterfall oriented process where they're, they're, they're taking a big bang approach to software and building something, you know, 
up until, you know, working for six months, going away, and then finally coming back with, you know, what they think is the eventual solution. That's a big problem for you, right? You haven't delivered any value. You've just been a cost to the organization for six months. And mm. then what you deliver at the end of that period, do you know that that's actually correct, right? Have you have you verified this by actually getting in feedback from the user base and making sure that what you're building is actually what they want? No, you haven't done that up until this point. So now you're sitting on, you know, six months of cost to the organization and hoping and praying that what you're bringing to them is actually going to meet their needs, right? I think it's a very risky endeavor on your part. Uh, yeah, think I think that's the word, right? Risky. Yeah. Because, you know, you're betting the six months, a team's effort, and you don't know, you might get a great outcome, but as we've learned over the past three or four decades, most of the time, it's it's not what you're going to hope, what you're hoping for. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the idea of this, you know, fixed price contract based approach to software um, is just an illusion. You know, I mean, I mean, even if you <clears throat> let's say you do get the software exactly right. Right. Let's say that I, I somehow miraculously I built the requirements exactly as they were stated. It works right. There's no bugs. And I came in within budget. Well, the users really didn't know what they wanted in the first place, right? Is what you're going to find out. <laughs> yes. What they wrote is not exactly what uh, you're you're delivering, and uh, it's not what's going to deliver value to the business, right? They just haven't quite made figured out what the users really need, and that's going to come through feedback, right? And the only way to get that feedback is to put it in front of them, to be delivering continuously, you know, looking at okay, I, I've built this little thing. Now let me put it out there. Let me see what they think. Let me see if it's actually useful to them because maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it's something that you, you need to completely pivot and move in a completely separate direction is, is often what you find out. I mean, it's not it's not that this happens sometimes, it's this, that this happens a lot. Uh, that's, that's where the risk comes in. Yeah, I think that was the whole points of the Agile Manifesto as well, right? The guys realized that there was these projects that were taking two years and there were a huge, well, half of them never delivered anything, but let's say half of them delivered something, but that was never useful for the users, actually, because there were so many assumptions made that were incorrect and times change. And um, they, there was a lot of smart guys that tried to figure out what to do about it, came up with some vague recommendations that seemed to actually work, right? Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, so what... What would you do? Um, how would you approach this in a team? Let's say we've got a team that actually, you know, there's very focused on producing great codes and, you know, they're doing TDD microservices. They're doing hexagonal architecture. You know, they're, they're using all the latest architectural um, solutions and they're using the latest tech, uh, but uh, they're not looking at the bigger picture, how they fit into the organization. They're not talking that often to the product people or the organization uh, people. And um, how, would you, how would you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the challenge is, is number one, helping the team to transform from a team that just looks at technology to a team that looks at the business, right, and is focused on the business itself. And a lot of that comes from number one, you know, having a true understanding of the product vision, right? What is, you really need to have a clear understanding of number one, uh, what is the problem statement for your product? And that really is the product vision. Um, what are you trying to solve? What problem is 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 what is your focus for this product that you're building? Because if you don't know that, how do you really make progress, right? I mean, where where do you um, where do you start, and how do you determine if something's high priority or not that you're working? 
Um, so really, that's to me, that's number one is figuring so starting out, with this North Star, putting out the pole. This is where we're going, absolutely. guys. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the number one. Now, number two, a team that's working like this, you need to look heavily at their backlog. Um, and, and that's often a big problem because they may be prioritizing things that are more technology focused versus business focused. Um, and they really need to look at what are the features that are going to be you know, going towards that guiding light, right? And and meeting that product vision. Um, we need to be really focused on making sure those are well-defined and, uh, you know, everything that's in the backlog actually has some value to meeting that eventual goal of solving our problem statement. So um, I think that's an interesting word you mentioned here, value. So what's your experience measuring value? How would you, you know, assign value to different backlog items, for example? What, what have you seen work or what, what have you seen that doesn't work? Yeah, so value is really based on, you know, some type of um, measurement, right? You, you need to be able to determine uh, if I develop this, what cost is it going to save or what revenue is it going to bring in? Um, those are your measurement tools because everything else doesn't matter to the business, right? I mean, it, it, if you talk about efficiency, efficiency is great, but you better be able to put a number on it. I mean, that's that's all there is to it. I, I don't care if you're scaling a system better if it does nothing for us. Um, if our user base is is 122 users, and yes, we may have a viable product with 122 users if they're paying quite a bit of money to use that product, but how far do I really need it to scale, right? So don't tell me that we need to you know focus on microservices and take this monolith into a microservices approach if you really don't have the need for it, right? We need to be focused on what's going to actually bring in money or save us money, right? Mm. That's all there is to it. And you can do that in a number of different ways, right? If you're looking for cost-cutting measures, either the feature is going to save money for somebody who's like in the customer service department or somebody who's working in accounting or whatever, it's going to save them time to be able to focus on to other things. So it's saving mm. salary dollars that you can then equate to uh, you know, a cost savings within the company, mm -hmm. or perhaps, you know, you're spending money on some type of asset and you can completely eliminate that asset by building your own software system, right? Maybe you've got um, a CRM tool or something like that, that you can replace by just simply implementing this small feature. That's all that you're really using that for. I've mm -hmm. done that for, for many organizations, right? Where they, they had a purchase product and simply by building this very easy tool, because they were only using one feature set of that purchase product. And this purchase product was costing them a million dollars a year. Mm. And they were able to eliminate, eliminate that entirely by just creating this feature set out of open source tools mm. and replace it entirely, right? And eliminate that cost. So those are ways that you can determine, hey, these are going to be cost savings. Now, revenue coming into the company, that's a little harder uh, to determine mm. just because you don't always know how something's going to perform, right? So yes, you may... You may add in this new system um, and it may, you know, drive new customers coming in, but how do we really know how many customers are going to buy into that and want to use it? Um, you, you have to have some type of either A-B testing, some way of uh, looking into when it's, when it goes out, is it really <clears throat> making the impact that we thought and do it in increments, right? Focus on uh, smaller features and see, you know, what the uptake is on those small features. Um, yep. Look at okay, when you release this little thing, is somebody actually using it? And you can release different versions of it, like I said, with A-B testing and say, okay, which version of that, you know, page or that, uh, you know, that little component within the page or whatever it is, which version is having the biggest impact? How many users are using it? 
Um, is it causing subscriptions to, you know, kind of flow through our subscriptions mm. going through faster? Um, you know, whatever the case may be, you need just some way of measuring and making sure that it's actually performing the way you want. So how would you approach these conversations? Let's say there's a team of developers, they're doing their microservices, TDD and everything else that's great, which is cool. But yeah. then you've got uh, product people or somebody from the executive team um, and those guys or girls are frustrated because features are not going as fast as the new challenger startups or uh, whatnot. How would you approach that? Yeah. So the challenging thing is, is that when you're building software, um, <clears throat> and I often tell this to my teams, is that building trust is more important than uh, building software. Mm. And those in management and those that call the shots really are not going to trust you if you're not delivering things that are bringing value to the organization. Mm. And so you really have to work on with the team of helping them to understand what builds trust, right? And uh, building that trust is really winning. You know, it's just like in sports. I always like to use the sports analogy, right? Because if you've got a team that's lost 10 games in a row and they're in last place, nobody trusts that team, right? They're, they're the, you know, they're the worst team in the league. I hate that team. I, I don't want to be a fan of that team. I don't want to buy their memorabilia. You know, I don't, I don't want anything. Mm. But as soon as they start winning, and especially if it's an unexpected win, right? They, they deliver something, they deliver a win that, you know, nobody thought they could get. All of a sudden it's like, wow, okay, maybe they're turning around. Maybe mm. let's start rooting for this team. You know, let's see, let's see if they can win some more, right? Let's, let's give them another chance. And so, you know, you need to really focus in on, you know, number one, I tell the teams, hey, look for the best bang for your buck thing that you can deliver, right? Look at, look at everything that they're asking for and say, okay, that thing right there, they're really excited about it. And it, we could finish that in maybe a couple of weeks. Let's deliver it, right? And keep doing that, right? Tackle these little things that you think are big, you know, big wins for your team that don't necessarily take as much time as they might be thinking. About. But what you're saying is those are big wins in the eyes of the stakeholders, actually, like the product people, the Absolutely. executive team, the guys that you want to build trust with. They see certain areas as, oh, we, we'd love to have that. We see this could deliver a lot of value to the company or to the clients. And if the team focuses on that, they start building trust with those guys because they can suddenly see that there's progress. And what you're also saying is uh, don't look for something that's going to take a year to deliver. Look That's for right. something that you can build a small increment of trust so that you can maybe take bigger risks later on. That's what absolutely. I'm hearing. Or, Yeah, also. that's absolutely the case. Yeah, you're right. And, and that's really key, right, is that you have to build back that trust. And then once you build back that trust, then you can start taking more risks over time. Uh, because if your team, you know, has, has been looking like a failure for this long, um, you know, th the lack of trust isn't just from, you know, the organization itself. It's also, it also starts to build up within the team. Nobody wants to be a scapegoat, right? And so developers are going to, you know, they're going to only want to take the easy stuff. They're only going to want to focus on what they're good at. Um, you know, people aren't going to want to make product decisions. You know, if you're the product owner, you're going to be like, well, you know, I, I, let me think about that for a while because they don't want to be on, you know, on the chopping block, whenever they come down and say, who's at fault for what's happening within this team, right? Everybody starts to mistrust each other. And you, you have to get <clears> those little wins to start with in order to get everybody on the same page and kind of working together again, right? Thinking <clears> about 
let's we can be successful. I know we can. So let's work at that and let's let's continue to get these big wins. And then, like you said, you know, your point to taking bigger risks later on, that's absolutely possible, right? Once you've built up that trust and the team trusts itself and you know the the management looking from the outside in, once they have that trust, everybody's like, well, yeah, sure. If y'all want to take this on, if y'all think this would be valuable to the organization, go for it. You know, we we know what you've been delivering to us. You're delivering constant value. Now we'll we'll give you that chance. Makes sense. So we're kind of touching on these projects that would be failing, right? So one of the areas that you could define a failure of the project is uh, the management executive team or the product team. They're not happy with what's being delivered to the customers. Any other areas of failing projects or buckets of failing projects uh, you, you have seen that you could share with us? Sure, absolutely. So um, actually, the, the first, the most difficult project I came into that uh, was failing was, um, it was a project that had been going on for three years. And it was kind of built, rebuilding the entire infrastructure underneath um, how a retail company handled their items and uh, their skewing and all of that. And it was a challenging project. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It was working with existing legacy systems that actually ran on AS400, if you remember what that is, if you worked with those kind of systems in the past. I haven't actually with this one specifically, no. Yeah, it's an it's an old IBM mainframe system, okay. AS400. Um, so there was interfacing with AS400, and uh, there was there was a lot of complexities involved in, in building out this uh, system. So were they kind of refactoring the architecture, or were they actually building something on the side for three years? It was an entirely new system that was dedicated to handling how their skewing works and their product uh, associations and sending it out to, it's kind of the the central point for all the other systems and how they identify items and they bring in items and they send them out to all the other systems like marketing or within the uh, the retail stores. Got it. Um, it, was, it was basically the central point for everything. So but would they switch some traffic to that system like in the f first year or was it was it yeah. not working yet? Right. So everything had been built on AS400. And so the existing item system that did all of this was all this, you know, old legacy system and they needed to get off it because it wasn't, they were continuing to have to having to vertical scale. Right. And it was costing the company a lot of money to, you know, constantly build these, you know, new server stacks to host, you know, the AS400 system that they were working with. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to be able to horizontally scale it uh, through new technologies and then also continue to have interactions with the old AS400 legacy systems behind the scenes. So mm. there, there was a lot of moving parts in place to do this. And today they were still okay working with that, you know, legacy system, but they needed the new system to be put in place and they would migrate over um, through, you know, either the old interfaces that we were going to back or, through new interfaces for the newer systems that were being developed. So okay. it was, you know, it, it was a, uh, a migration that would happen once the, the new product was in place. Okay. So the challenge here was, is that three years had gone past, right? They, mm. they had made virtually no progress and uh, the system was kind of- And when you say mo no progress, you mean there's no customers using uh, this new system as part of their customer journeys or something like that? Uh, it, well, actually there was just no system to be had. I mean- you know, ah, Okay, so they were working on something but there was nothing there yet. They just weren't making visible progress, right? I mean, it okay. was, was kind of like the, uh, you know, the old problem in software, right? We're 90% done. We're constantly 90% done. Mm. Right? We're almost there. And, and they were working in a fashion, you know, they agile, was still, you know, it, it was not new, but 
it, it was kind of still making its way in organizations. You know, most organizations were still operating under a waterfall pro approach. So, you know, the 90% rule was kind of applying there where they really weren't accomplishing anything, but they were telling them, hey, we're close, we're close, we're close for, and this had gone on for three years. So when they brought me in, uh, the biggest challenge was, is that they weren't just weren't showing any progress, right? They hadn't seen any progress. And, and this is what I've found is mostly the biggest problem when you come into these projects that are failing is, is that there's no visible progress and it's just kind of been dragging on forever. And so it, like I talked about before with trust, the trust has just completely evaporated within the organization from the top down. Hmm. And the team doesn't trust one another. They're, you know, they're not wanting to, you know, potentially take blame for any problems. The product owners don't want to make decisions. It's just a complete breakdown in that trust. So, you know, what I found is, is that when you come into these types of situations, um, you know, number one, you have to, you know, focus on that product vision, um, assess the quality of the backlog, you know, and then start looking at why the team is having these problems with delivery. Um, that specific team, what I found was, is their biggest problem was is they they had a bunch of developers who were completely inexperienced with the technology set they had chosen. You know, and mm. in a lot of companies, this is what they do, right? They come into a new project. And it's like, hey, we're building this new product. So it's going to be new technologies, right? It's got to be the latest and greatest stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to do that, make sure you have the people who know that technology. Um, if you don't, and you're taking legacy developers and you're saying, hey, you, I know you've been developing AS400, you know, code for however long, but now you're going to learn Java and you're going to build with, you know, Spring Boot or whatever it is, right? I mean, that's tough, right? It's a very big jump. And to expect those developers just to be able to do it on their own without, you know, the proper training or the proper help from somebody who's done it before is going to be a big challenge. And that's really you know, the crux of it with that, within that organization is, is that they had brought in developers who just weren't experienced enough to do what they needed to do. And they had actually tried to bring in an agile coach. Um, and the agile coach just, you know, wasn't making headway because there was nobody there who could not only coach them on, you know, it wasn't just process, right? The process was only part of the problem. The other part was, is they just needed help. They needed somebody who could tell them, Hey, set it up this way. It'll make your life so much easier if you just mm structure the project appropriately, you know, this is how you break down separation of concerns. This is how you, you know, do test-driven development. This is how you, uh, you know, deliver, they put, in the, put the automation in place so that we can deliver something after every sprint and show them what we're doing. Uh, get it's important also what you said, like you mentioned these practices here and those guys in these mainframe, um, in the world of mainframes, haven't seen any of these practices you've just mentioned, right? So for them to learn TDD, that's uh, I've heard this term change capacity. How much capacity does the team or an individual have to change? And smart, they were obviously smart guys, right? They were working in software for for decades. Uh, but um, what I'm hearing also is um, there's there's a stack of different practices that those guys need to adopt. It's not going to take them a week or two to be suddenly good enough at those to be able to deliver at a sustainable pace. And it's not fair to expect from them to uh, to suddenly pick those all of those new practices up and the new technology stack and uh, start delivering. So there's That's this right. kind of J curve where you're investing in the new technology. You're supposed to expect actually um, slower delivery for a time and help them uh, help to flatten that slower delivery with training, like you said, uh, helping with the process with agile coaches, etc. But there wasn't uh, 
uh, that wasn't part of this project. Um, okay. Yeah. And so the, the challenge was, you know, they just needed, they needed a guide along their journey. Right. And I find that a lot in organizations, right. Is that they, if you have the right guide, any team can be successful. Um, and when you say guide, you mean like uh, a senior developer or uh, somebody that can put on different hats actually, or. I think that's the key, right? You, you've got one of two choices. One, you can either bring in multiple people who can solve different roles or you can bring in an individual who is able to wear those multiple hats, right? And the projects that I've parachuted into, I've always had to wear those multiple hats, right? Uh, and it's it's a matter of if you're um, good at doing, you know, this type, good at solving these types of uh, problems for organizations, um, that's really what it takes. Because number one, you have to be able to, uh, you know, approach the product owners and help them with their backlog, you know, mm. building figuring out what it is that they want to accomplish. You've got to be able to understand project vision. You've got to be able to communicate with developers in a way that makes sense to them. You've got to be able to work with them, pair program with them, teach them, you know, how to build good software. You have to have the technology experience to say, hey, yeah, I've worked with that. Here's how I would do it, right? Here's how I would solve this problem and be able to implement solutions that they can then, you know, take that and say, okay, I see what he did here. Now let me replicate that over here and do the same type of feature uh, you know, for this particular problem. And that's, that's exactly how I approach, you know, every time I come into one of these projects is, you know, I do that evaluation up front to see where, where their challenges are, right? What, what are they, uh, what are they having issues with? Are they, um, are they really having an issue with the product backlog? Is that the problem? Are they just prioritizing things incorrectly? Are they a, a good development team who understands the technology? They just can't seem to figure out what's important. And I think we mm. talked about that a little earlier with teams that are just focused on technology, right? They just mm. want to build the, the coolest thing, the most well-architected, you know, technical solution they possibly can all the time. Is that their problem? Or is it more that they're inexperienced with the technologies, they need some help in that area? Or is it a process problem, right? Is it a problem where... Um, they just don't quite understand the in intricacies of the agile process and how to, you know, continuously deliver the automation that needs to be there, um, the approach to getting requirements, how to do test-driven development successfully. You know, you really have to kind of hone in on where their problems are and then be able to tackle those problems, have the experience to know, okay, what, if that's the problem, then how do I help them in that area? Or find somebody who can't. Right. If you're somebody who can at least identify the problems, you need to at least have the people there that can come in and help them, right? And be that guide for whatever it is that they're they're facing. So what I'm hearing from you is if you can wear multiple hats, and if you're the consultant that's seen different areas and has experience helping in different areas, be it, for example, helping communicate. Uh, helping building trust between product and development teams by facilitating the communication or uh, helping c developers um, bring them up to bringing them up to speed with the technology stack they've been uh, tasked with um, you have an easier job then of identifying these bottlenecks in the organization so what's stopping actually what's the biggest bottleneck you have um, right now in your value flow to the users what's actually stopping you from delivering this product that you were waiting for three years already but it's not there yet so you come in you can wear five hats let's say and you can say actually let's focus on this thing first because you're going to get the most uh, value for your bucks here if you change that bit and maybe you know in this uh, with, with these guys from what i'm hearing is it was actually technology because the guys were 
they weren't actually able to uh, deliver the product if, even if they were told to if the, even if they were knew what they were supposed to deliver they had problems delivering it in sustainable pace or fast enough pace because they were just dropped into new, this new technology stack architecture etc that's exactly right yeah once you identify where the problem is i think that's the key right uh, you know to solving any uh, any problem uh, within a team that's, you know, hasn't been performing the way they should, or, you know, a project that's way behind the deadline, you know, like take that one, for example, nobody thought uh, that that project was going to be successful at this point, because it had been three years, right? They had accomplished nothing. So we ended up having something that was viable within six months. And it was a shock to the organization. I mean, nobody was expecting that. In fact, other teams that were supposed to be interfacing with this product had been saying they were 90% done for you know a long time. And even a few of them were saying that they were done. Well, it was a big problem because you know they, their expectation was is that they could say this and get away with it because mm. the project was never going to get delivered to, end with, to begin with, right? So uh, when we delivered in six months, it, it was a huge win for the organization. I mean, they and the whole team, you could tell how excited they were about what they'd accomplished and and you know it was it was career growth for all of them, right they mm -hmm. they've now seen how we can deliver software successfully um through you know using agile methods and agile techniques as well as learning a new technology that now helps them expand in their career right and that, that's what i love right with working with teams i love when you can help individuals to be a better version of themselves right and and to suddenly become uh, you know, something they thought they couldn't be, right? It's like everybody has that kind of confidence gap uh, in themselves, right? Of, well, you know, I don't know if I can really get to that next level, right? Mm -hmm. Is that really me? I see all these other guys who are successful, but I don't know if I can do that. Well, how do you know, right? I mean, until you you really put in the effort and, and you're doing it every day and you're trying hard, and it's that learning that we talked about, right? Continuing to to get out of your comfort zone and learn and work hard and try to and try to tackle that next thing. That's how you get there, right? That's how you achieve your goals. And that's how you get forward in life. I mean, it works with anything in life, right? I mean, what's, what's been your experience? I think it's also fulfilling, you know, when you see this growth aspect of our human experience, at least for me, and I guess the people I hang out with, um, you know, it's part of the things that makes your life more fulfilling. So if you yeah. stop, then you know the fulfillment kind of fades away or the meaning in life might fade away so you know once you get on that and i understand what you're saying as well because i can think of individuals where you know they have problems believing in themselves that they can make this gap though you know if you're looking at it probably uh, at the problem and seeing like a two millimeter gap right they're right. seeing like a, a one mile gap right because from your experience right. you see it's so easy it's just a mindset shift probably like even things that might seem difficult like tdd for example starting with tests you don't know where to start or how does it work you suddenly need to start using mocking you suddenly need to you know realize there's different tests that you need to write not just one big test etc uh, but you know that 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 for somebody that's done it many times it's probably a two millimeter shift just start with a test and you'll figure it out over the next four, uh, four weeks. You'll figure out how to write those tests. I'll come in once a week and help you and it'll be all right. Right. For them, probably it's like, oh, my God, you know, how does the end result look like? Uh, you know, those guys that do TDD supposedly have brilliant code and great execution uh, speeds, etc. I don't believe it's even possible. Right. Um, 
yeah um i wish i wish there was more people um helping people like you are you know not not only in the you know in the um the technology space or process space but also on an individual level right like approaching it from a hey, we're all the same here uh let's um uh let's do it together and um well we, we might make some mistakes but um, um i've seen this work so why not right yeah. and then you actually end, come into a project that's been three years behind and in six months everybody's surprised because it's working so uh, you know this miracle actually happens and mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't in a week, right? It wasn't in a week or two weeks because there was a baggage of things that had to be solved. But yeah. uh, what I'm hearing from you, eventually the company's happy actually, and they're yeah. really uh, they're generating value to the clients. Uh, the guys, um, all the individuals, develop their careers. Uh, plus, the company's got a new product they can and they can offer it to their customers and generate more revenue uh, to probably hire more developers and these guys now become senior and train more st more staff, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, building people within your organization is critical, right? I mean, you know, if you don't have that focus of trying to lift people up and have them grow as, uh, as an individual, um, you're going to stagnate. I mean, your, your organization is only as good as the people that work within it, right? I mean, th th that's really your firepower within the organization to get better. And so if you're not focused on that of saying, hey, I, I want people to learn and I want people to grow and here, I want to get them the help they need, the guide they need to grow in that area, it's a big mistake. And, and that's, that's really my sales pitch a lot of times to companies is that, you know, having that kind of guide, someone who can come in and be able to show them, hey, look, if you just do this, you'll get over that threshold, right? You'll suddenly be more productive or be delivering better or, you know, create, creating more value or whatever it is that they need to do within the organization. If you can get there, all of a sudden, you know, it's a huge boon for your organization, right? You, you, you create much more, you know, there's always this, everybody talks about 10 times developers, right? Who's a 10 X developer? Eh, you know, you always hear about this. Well, 10 X developers are those folks who they, have gotten over that threshold, right? They're, they're either just like really, they're good with the technology and they're, they also have the business acumen and they have the, um, the ability to communicate, right? You, you have to have all three. You have to be good at technology. You have to have business acumen and you have to be able to communicate well with the business in order to be this, you know, supposed 10X developer. And you can have all kinds of those within your organization, these 10X guys that are super good. But the key is, is you have to give them the guidance they need to be able to accomplish all three of those things. Because if they're only good in one area, they're not going to succeed, right? It's really difficult to be a great developer until you're good at all three of those things. And the deficiency generally comes in one of those areas with teams. And you just have to figure out which of those areas they need to focus on. If, you, if, you, if you're great at technology and just great at technology, the best thing you can produce is great technology. That's right. We're not talking about, there's no user experience in that equation, right? Suddenly, when you start talking to product people, for example, and you've got the communication skills, and maybe they have a bit how to talk to developers as well, right? They've built this common language. Suddenly, you've got two inputs to your function if you're a developer, right? And you can uh, produce something that's great technology plus a great product because you're communicating with the product people. And then you can add uh, the other ones you're talking about. And suddenly, you've got this all around the developer that can deliver 
deliver value to customers, not just a great piece of technology. That makes That's sense. Right. And, and these developers are extremely productive at that point, right? I mean, you know, you'd be surprised how, how you know, taking this guy, you talked about before the guys that are just purely technical, they're just, you know, focused on the best architecture and the best, you know, technology. The latest I, I feel for those guys, you know, because I, I, I used to be that guy, right? And I used oh, yeah. to be, yeah. I used to love TDD. I used to love hexagonal architecture. I used to love those things. And, you know, I just realized after 10 years of doing that, right? I was like, you know, there's other ways you can be better. Right. Yeah. And then you come into the communication patterns, how you develop, you know, relationships with people and trust with people, etc. And um, I guess what we're saying here is maybe if somebody's listening to this, uh, they'll realize earlier in their journey that there's some other things that they can look at and how to uh, get better as a software developer. Software development is not just about writing those lines of code. It's knowing which lines to write. And that involves talking to people and understanding the business language, et cetera. Yeah. Soft skills, right? Everybody talks about soft skills. And soft skills are hard. I've, I've yeah. seen that on LinkedIn recently. <laughs> so, you know, some tips real quick for guys, you know, some, like you said, somebody that might be watching this, you know, if you have never done it, First off, I say start with writing articles about the things that you're learning, right? Start up a blog or go on to Medium, right? Medium is a great place to create. All you got to do is create an account and then you can start writing about whatever, right? Try to explain things that you're learning to other people. It helps with your ability to communicate. So if I have to go in and, you know, take what I've learned and I think that I know something and then I have to create a tutorial about it. Or I have to debate one way or the other that this thing is good versus, you know, technology X is good against technology Y. That's a tough thing to do, right? It's a lot harder than you think it is until you actually sit down and try to write something. And then all of a sudden you realize, okay, well, you know, maybe I am a little better at communicating now than I thought because I've been writing all of this stuff. And some of it's actually pretty good. And some people have had some interest in it. Maybe you've got some followers. Maybe you've you know, you know, posted it out to some, you know, an important site that publishes articles or whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, you're starting to make some headway. Well, then start thinking about doing presentations. And this is actually pretty easy to do because there's local user groups everywhere, or you can do one online, right? Through, uh, you know, a user group online, whatever the case may be, just find one, find one that you can do a presentation for. And, you can either do it remotely, do it in person. I actually tend to prefer the ones that are in person because I think it's, you know, it number one brings up those uh, those butterflies that you get every time that you have to present in front of anyone. And I think it's good to get used to that feeling, right? You, you mm. need that, that confidence, that ability to push through uh, whenever you get that nervousness that's going to, you know, inevitably build and be able to get past that and then have success right and you may stumble it's a practicing ground for what you said earlier which is those uh conversations with product owners let's yeah. say right you're gonna That's go right. to a team that don't know your language and you're gonna have to explain to them in yeah. person not online right that's absolutely right and that's the thing is that by doing this by number one writing and number two going out and doing presentations you will build those soft skills, whether you know it or not, right? You, you may not even realize they're happening, but they will. And all of a sudden, you know, especially like whenever people are asking you questions, I, I love that at the end of presentations, right? When people start asking questions and you're having to on the fly kind of, you know, come up with responses, appropriate responses, you know, gauge their interest, you know, all those things. It's great, right? It's great for those kind of conversations with stakeholders because that's what's going to happen. Right. They're going to be quizzing you. They're going to be trying to think of your, you know, you got to come up with ideas on the spot 
that meet the demands of their questions. So, you know, for anybody that's out there that might be thinking about how can I do this, right? How can I get better? Those are the two biggest things I would recommend to start with. And um, it's not only helpful for you, it's helpful to others as well. So you can see it as giving back to the community as well, because you're teaching them something that they may not know, right? So whether you're writing about, you know, something that you learn or you're going out and doing a presentation, others are benefiting from that, right? And they say, oh, okay, well, maybe I should start looking into that. Maybe I should learn that so I can grow my career as well. So it's it's good for both. It's good for you. And it's also giving back to the community. I think it's an important point as well. The one, the last point you made here that, what I've noticed, what I've noticed is um, a lot of developers or architects, etc., et they sit on a mountain of um, experience and knowledge they've built on top over the years. And to them, it looks like you know, once you're sitting on top of that mountain, you know, you don't see the mountain you've just climbed over the last ten years, right? <laughs> and they think it's just normal. They think everybody has the same. Uh, issues they have, uh, you know, everybody knows what they've already learned, etc. And for example, from our cast, from uh, from my business point of view, we tend to, you know, help customers where the knowledge gap is high, right? So we can deliver the most value to customers where uh, the knowledge gap is the highest. So I often speak to customers and teams that are early in their journey of, let's say, API uh, virtualization, API simulation, test automation, etc. right? And the questions they ask are like, uh, you know, you, you realize suddenly that, oh dear, yes, you're right. This is a very important question I used to ask myself nine years ago, right? And those guys, you know, need help. And for me, it's so easy, right? And you, and you can deliver so much value because uh, with one sentence, you solve a lot of their problems just because you've been doing it for so long. And to you, it might look like it's a no brainer, but you know, there's a lot of people that actually are starting their journey and it took you 10 years or in your case, 20 years or somebody else's case, you know, three years maybe to figure something out. And um, uh, that's not obvious to somebody else. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's the thing is, you know, Everybody who's in that, the, the longer you've spent in the industry, you realize, you know, you didn't know what you didn't know, right? <laughs> and that's that's the biggest problem is that whenever you first start out in technology, you just don't know what you don't know. And then over time, you realize, okay, you know, now I'm starting to get it, right? If I, if I uh, you know, work in this area, I'll improve my soft skills. If I work in this area, I'll improve my technical skills. And then and you dive a little deeper and you understand the, the inner workings of things behind the scenes, but all of it just takes time. I mean, it's just a, it's a learning process and it takes a lot of experience to get there to, you know, climb that mountain, as you said. I mean, there, there's a lot that goes into it over time. Um, I know we said we're going to be finishing soon, but I'm enjoying this conversation. So you've got 50, if you've got 15 minutes more, I'm happy to continue. If you've got to, if you've got to finish, um, you know, we can cut here as well. Up to you. Jacob. Yeah, I cleared my schedule. I'm central time. You know, I've got, I've got time before lunch, so we're good. Awesome. Yeah, so I was actually curious, um, we talked about this uh, project where uh, the organization or I'm guessing architects or somebody, um, you know, that that that's um, in the technology department, but a bit higher up decided that they're, they're going to use this new stack. And I heard the Java stack. Um, so my question to you would be, um, like a two-folded question. First of all, what would you have done in that project if you could go back and be one of those people that decided 
what is the tech stack or would you even decide on the tech stack what, what else would you do and the second um question i would have is uh how would you approach evaluating new technologies not as a um let's say Re let's rebuild the system it's going to take a few years but individual bits let's say uh, we need to we need this capability in our software team or our product team how would how do we uh, evaluate these five tools and how do we um choose one of them to um fulfill our needs sure yeah so the first part you talked about getting started Right. And you know, where do we start when we're looking at um, a new technology stack? And what would I have done in that situation with the organization? So if you're getting started on a new technology, um, my first recommendation is, is if you can bring in somebody who's an expert at this, right, um, a consultant. And the reason why I say this is, is because within an organization, you just, again, you don't know what you don't know. And what you're trying to do is, is evaluate all these you know, potential technologies that can meet your needs without any knowledge about any of those technologies. Now, if you can bring in somebody who's um, a consultant that has done this and worked with a variety of technologies in the past and knows the latest and greatest things, they're going to have a better time being able to evaluate your situation based on, you know, the information you provide them and help you make a good decision. Now, if you can't do that, I can give you some tips and tricks on what the best approach is for evaluating technologies up front. Now, it's it's a bit of a lengthy process, especially if you don't know anything about the technologies, and it will take some time, which is why I recommend a consultant. But if you head down that path, the, the best thing to do is start to look at uh, the eight different things that I tend to focus on. Number one is industry adoption. So you need to be looking at things like job boards, you know, backing from large companies, how many downloads something has, you know, how prevalent is the technology within the industry? I think that's the number one focus that you need to do for every technology that you're considering. So if you're looking at a tech stack, start looking there because number one with job boards, you need to make sure that, you know, you can find developers, right? So yes, your company may be working with this thing, but can you really hire other people? Um, if a developer leaves, what are you going to do? Can you find somebody for a reasonable price? It's all, it all comes down to supply and demand for developers at that point. Um, and it, unless it's pretty widely adopted, you're going to have a problem finding people. Um, the other problem is, is that if there's not a lot of industry adoption, what about abandonment, right? What do you have to worry about over time? Um, is this software going to be around, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, whenever we need uh, support for this? Is, is it going to be something that we can get that support and uh, have the help we need? Number two, licensing terms, right? Um, I tend to prefer open source technologies. Um, you know, there's also, you know, freemium paid support, um, proprietary. Open, a lot of open source technologies these days do have a paid support option so that you can, you know, get on the open source product and then have an actual backing company that will help you out if you need it, um, assuming you're paying for the monthly support fees. Um, but really open, the great thing about open source technologies and they become more and more prevalent over time. They were just kind of getting started whenever I first started my career. But the great thing about them is, is that you can dive in, right? If there's a problem, you can always look and see if you can solve that problem yourself first, or it's much easier to understand the technology because you can dive in and say, okay, I see what it's doing here and what I'm doing wrong. Right. You mm. have that ability. Um, whereas, you know, if it's something proprietary where the code is hidden behind the scenes, you don't really know. You're kind of at the mercy of whoever provides that product to giving you an answer of why you're getting this error code or 
um, you know, what, what the problem might be behind the scenes and where, where their bug is at. Is it a bug within their system? You just don't know. And you're, you're kind of at their mercy for that. And it's all dependent on, you know, their documentation. And that's my number three. Um, documentation, you know, if something doesn't have documentation, forget about it. I mean, it's, it's not even worth using. Um, these days, you know, you're expecting documentation to be detailed, well-written, easy to follow. It, it needs to be good, right? It, don't even consider a product that doesn't have good documentation because it's, it's going to be very difficult for you to use that product over time. Um, and also to, you know, whenever you get to new features, how do I do that? You need to be able to refer to something to be able to understand it. Um, number four is ease of use. So this comes from building a proof of concept. Um, the great thing about Ring and a consultant is, is they've probably built things before so they can build you a proof of concept pretty quickly if uh, you want to see one for the technology within your organization solving one of your specific features. But always build a proof of concept with the tech stack to make sure that it meets the needs of what your organization is trying to do. And also, you know, to make sure that you like it. Right. I mean, do the developers within the organization actually think that this thing is usable and user friendly? Right. The, the technology used should be we always talk about UXs and, hey, is the UX user friendly? Well, the technology you're using should also be user friendly. Right. It should be something that I want to develop in, not something that requires me to create a whole bunch of boilerplate code. And, you know, it's a nightmare to work with because the APIs are always failing, whatever the case may be. So consider that as well. Community support is number five. Um, you know, there needs to be a community there advising, answering questions, look on Stack Overflow. You know, are there people out there constantly, you know, responding to you if you were to have a query about something? You need to be able to Google it, right? You need to be able to find out, hey, if I have a problem, can I solve it? Can I get answers out here? Um, number six is feature mapping. And this really comes down to mapping out what your expected needs are from the technology for capabilities, security, Etc. You know, does the technology really support them? You need to figure that out. And that's key to knowing whether this technology is going to meet your needs today and also in the future. Number seven, scalability. This is really around, will the technology meet the performance needs we have now and in the foreseeable future? And if it's not going to meet those needs, you probably want to consider something else. You know, if you're expecting a user base, you know, take a look at chat GPT, right? They had a hundred million users within what, a month, two months, whatever it was, the fastest run up to that many users in history. If they hadn't built that product for scalability and considered it up front, they would have failed day one. I mean, that's, that, that'd be a huge problem for them. So look at, you know, what your user base is considered to be and make sure that the technology that you're building on is going to be able to scale out to that in the future. That's key. And then number eight, am I? Final I think one? just one point on the number seven. I think it's what I've seen on top of the um, the performance of the tool itself is scalability across the um, the teams. I don't know if you've had that experience as well. So yeah. where you know there's going to be five people on the team that can pick up the tool, but once you start talking to the rest, ninety five of them, they're like, "We're you know this is so far from where you were used to. Let's choose a different tool." Actually, right? So right. not not just. Um, uh, the performance, but um, also scaling across the organization um, uh, and many teams. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, you know, if the if you can't get buy-in from every team and uh, you know try to standardize the technology set that you're using, you are you're going to have disparate technologies across the organization, and that that creates a problem in itself. 
Um, you know, it, it's not. So, that- what's your pro- what's your experience with that? Like different technologies and different teams. We've got this uh, notion of the self-organizing teams right now. One team is using Ruby on Rails. The next one's using Java. The next one's using I don't know Perl, right? Unlikely, but let's say, right? And those are totally different stacks. It's not just about the programming language. It's the whole architecture of how you write tests, how you deploy it, how does the uh, virtual machine, if there is one, work and performance. Uh, uh, how how do you configure that, etc. Right? This is five years of knowledge that you need to build up, or three years of knowledge you need to build up to be proficient enough to run something in production to be able to scale to, let's say, in case of ChatGPT, to 100 million users, right? So, what's your experience with that? How do you tackle uh, that problem? Yeah. So, my opinion on that is the larger the organization, the less of a problem, right? So, if your organization is fairly small. Um, you know, let's say your organization is 200 to 500 people. It's very difficult to get, to be able to manage that whenever you have multiple technology sets that you're working with technology stacks. But if you're an organization like Amazon, it's not that big of a deal. You know, you've got so many people working within that organization and so many disparate teams that having those different technology stacks is not going to create the same kind of problems it would within a smaller organization. So within a smaller organization, you have to think about things like um, creating uh, silos, right? Silos of knowledge. And if you're working with different technology stacks, those silos are going to be very, not necessarily, but mostly well-defined, right? You're suddenly going to have, okay, this team only works on this product because they know these technologies, right? And this team only works on this product because they know these technologies. And so it's very difficult to have knowledge sharing across the organization because developers want to work with what they're familiar with. And it's not that they can't learn those technologies, but it's it's an impediment to that, right? And they could potentially get over there, but they may not get proficient with working in that space. And so you may inadvertently create silos of knowledge within the organization. And that those silos aren't necessarily just technology understanding silos. It's all understanding silos. It's also silos of business knowledge, right? So I don't know, you know, maybe I work with the customer service systems and you work with the, uh, you know, the technician systems and we work on totally different technology sets. Well, I don't know anything about how the technicians work or what they do or how that part of the business works. I only work within customer service. And so now if a question comes up within customer service that might also be solvable by something that's also been done on your side, I have no knowledge of that. I have no understanding. And I also can't help to make my system more uh, proficient in solving problems that might exist on your end, right? Mm-hmm. Because I just, it's a bit, it's a silo of knowledge. And so my recommendation is stick to a single technology stack across the organization find one that works for everybody that, you know, you've got buy-in across the board and you've made it simple to use across the board. And that's, I think that's a key thing too, is that, Whenever you choose a technology stack, either one, you have to choose one that's very easy to use, or you have to make it easy to use. And it might be a combination of the of two, two things there, right? So whenever you build something with that technology, you may build your own in-house, you know, DSL, a domain-specific language, or a framework around that technology that makes it very simple to create the kind of applications your company creates with that technology. And that's key. Right. I mean, you want it to be, you want developers when they come in, everything to make sense, right? Where do I put models and where do I put services and how do I, you know, are we using REST APIs? Those decisions, quit making developers 
make decisions all the time, right? The fewer decisions that they have to make along the way, and I'm not saying developers aren't good at making decisions. We have to make decisions all the time, but reduce- Make the important ones, not the yes. ones that don't actually make a difference. Exactly, right? I mean, you gotta make the important decisions and you wanna make the, you want developers making the decisions that really um, are important to your business, right? Not important. It's like you said, right? These, these developers that are focused on all the technology and that's all they do, those decisions, yeah, like the, the stack, let's say the stack you've mentioned, let's say Java, right? What's I've seen companies move to uh, Scala, uh, Kotlin, that's still JVM, right? What's the advantage of Scala over Java? Well, there's some advantage you can do, you know, less lines of code. There's some things that are going to be harder to do in Java, etc. But what's the cost to the organization? looking at the developers you've mentioned. How many good Scala guys can you get on the market? Well, they charge twice as much to start with, right? <laughs> then um, how easy it is to actually read that Scala code once it's been out for five years in the wild, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it's actually worth to sticking to good old Java. And you know, some guys are gonna complain they can't use Scala or Kotlin, but maybe overall, if you look at the organization, Maybe that's the right uh, thing to do. And maybe the developers should focus on the important decision for the company, for example, which features uh, to uh, develop first and talking with the product guys, you know, actually this, you know, this is going to take six months to develop and you're only going to get 10 units of value for the user for this. But this we can develop in two weeks and you get five value, five points of value for the user, right? That's kind of conversations, giving their deep experience in what they've seen already in the code base, maybe a legacy code base and understand how to deliver value to the user and work closely with the product people and um, use uh, their, how, that's how they, how they can help make these important decisions, not necessarily deciding whether to use protobuf and gRPC versus RESTful versus SOAP, right? Which at the end of the day, most of the time doesn't actually make much difference. Um, at least from my experience, I don't know what's what's your take on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, in technologies, you can argue different advancements create, you know, abilities to maybe build something faster, right? I mean, it's it's possible, right? You might you might be able to get some efficiency out of, um, you know, taking adopting a new technology. But my experience has been in the past, if you build the right frameworks around the technologies you're using, and you're able to you know, kind of create or eliminate boilerplate code that developers are having to, you know, put in there and also simplify through uh, component libraries and, you know, um, things that you've built into the framework that you've created, their ability to deliver features, people can be extremely efficient with older technologies. I mean, extremely efficient and, and build great software that meets the needs of the business. It's just all about how easy are you making it for developers with what you've built to support what they do? Um, and I think that's that's the key, right? And, and it all comes down to uh, focusing on the business and uh, focusing on what the business needs really are in building your framework and your stack around that um, and creating the support pieces in what you've built, the components in what you've built that, uh, that make it simple to support the business processes and the business capabilities that are in place. Yep. So you had a point number eight as well prepared? Oh, yes, point number eight, yes, yes. Point number eight is extensibility. 
So, um, you know, whenever you're looking at a technology, the a technology stack that you're, you know, thinking about adopting, you need to make sure it can be extended throughout the future and support, you know, future needs, either through plugins, modules, libraries, whatever the case may be. And most of the time, open source projects are great for this. You know, they, they generally provide a point of extensibility where, you know, you can plug something in or, you know, just by looking at the source code, you can figure out how to, you know, bring something in that you need um, and integrate with a new technology. Because if you don't have, <clears throat> excuse me, those points of extensibility, then when new technologies come down the line that you need to integrate with or work with, um, you've kinda, you kind of, you might've coded yourself into a corner um, and you won't be able to, you know, achieve those needs. Awesome. So those are my tips. And I can uh, provide the link. I actually have a, a technology adoption checklist, a PDF. Uh, awesome. So if you could uh, send me that link uh, once yeah. we finish talking, I'll link it in the notes and in the description of the podcast. That would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that said, uh, any other questions for today? No, I think this was really insightful. So I've learned a couple of things actually, right? So certain things, so... I, I've been in the industry, let's say, for more or less 20 years, right? And, you know, you, you think about certain things um, a certain way, and then somebody like you comes in and says, it's about building, for example, it's about building trust first uh, in order to build the velocity later on, right? If you want to use right. the standard terms. And I'm like, yeah, that just makes sense, you know? It's, it's a very simple concept, but a very powerful one, right? And I would always say, yeah, we got to talk, you know, how about we gather together and start talking about how to solve this issue we've identified or the problem, as you call it, or the bottleneck. Uh, but the concept of trust uh, kind of resonates a lot in this area for me as well. And there were a couple of other things I've learned, which I'll actually uh, probably put in the title of the of the podcast. <laughs> right, so, yeah, um, yeah uh, I enjoyed this chat. Uh, thank mm -hmm. you so much, uh, Jacob. And um, yeah, um, thanks. So, uh, thank you so much for for uh, doing this today. Uh, how can people find you? Uh, so you can either find me at focus.dev, uh, that's my company website, or at jacoborshalik.me. Uh, those are generally places where I post information, and uh, you can actually subscribe to my weekly newsletter on jacoborshalik.me, or you can subscribe if you want uh, you know, business emails about what focus.dev is doing. You can also subscribe there and uh, see our latest uh, posts through articles, and also I'm constantly active on LinkedIn, so uh, you can find me there. Awesome. And we'll link those things uh, just below in the description as well. Thank you so much, Jacob. And until the next time. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.